0: Welcome, everyone, to Season 2, Episode 1. In this first episode of Season 2, I speak with Sonny Maniwan. He is currently VP and GM, Global SMB at Braze. Sonny didn't start in business or marketing. In fact, he started his career as an aeronautical engineer. In this episode, he takes us through his journey, starting from arriving in the US as an immigrant at the age of 12 through to his engineering job at GE then into management consulting, product marketing, and business. I first heard Sonny speak in an interview he gave on managing tense stakeholder relationships and really liked the way he approaches intercompany dynamics. The variety of roles he's had really shows in the insights he shares. I really can't think of a better guest to start the season. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. Welcome, Sunny. Thank you so much for joining for the very first episode of season two. I'm really excited about today's conversation.
1: Me too. Thanks for having me, BJ.
0: Now, you, you have a, a really interesting path, both your life and career path. You've worked in a variety of industries, functions, and roles. But before we get into that, I'd, I'd like to kick off this episode with something I'm personally very interested in, and I'm sure you would have many great insights on which is the topic of presentations. I'm sure over the course of your career, you've seen some amazing presentations, and I'm sure you've also seen some terrible presentations. So two specific questions. What has been the most memorable presentation you've seen? And two, what do you think are some of the elements, maybe some of the counterintuitive elements of really great presentations? And this could be something specific to how you create the slides or the delivery
1: The best presentation from recent memory is actually a presentation from uh, someone named Omar Johnson, who I believe at the time was a VP of marketing at Apple, or perhaps he was a former VP of marketing at Apple. And he'd been the CMO at Beats by by Dr. Dre and had a background in Nike as well. And it was at a software conference. I forget which one, but he effectively talked about the power of brand, the power of storytelling, and how do you build great teams? and he used stories and visuals from his experience. And to me, what made that presentation, some of the presentations like that great are, number one, the energy of the speaker is very important. And that's something that I really resonate with. I think you can have terrible visuals, you can have a storyline that doesn't quite make sense, but the energy and the enthusiasm of the speaker can overcome a lot of those mistakes, whereas the opposite is not true. You can have the best visuals and the best storyline, but if the speaker isn't quite feeling it, then you're not going to quite feel it as a listener. And Omar that day just did an exceptional job. He's just such a polished presenter. And I remember looking at that presentation and watching it and just said, someday I've got to be like that. And the visuals were stunning as well as you can imagine, given somebody who'd been in consumer (laughs) marketing for a long time. And it was just an incredibly inspiring and beautiful presentation that was really well delivered. And that's one that really came to mind when he asked me this question. And there's others like it that really are the combination of great visuals, great storytelling, and most importantly, high enthusiasm and energy from the speaker.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. I'll, tr- I'll I'll see if I can uh, find a link to that and uh, maybe include that in the show notes. One thing I've come to realize is that the in-person presentations, when you have, you can have a lot of slides where it's just, you really build up everything. And it's sometimes you see like a 200 slide presentation, but it's not necessarily word heavy but uh, a lot of information is conveyed.
1: Totally, I've seen that too. I've seen that work really well where the speaker is clicking from slide to slide so quickly and the talk track is so perfectly in tune with the slides. And as a viewer and a listener, you are constantly engaged and you're constantly paying attention to what's changing on the screen. And especially when there's that sort of beautiful symphony between the talk track and what's on the slides, that is a pretty otherworldly experience and as somebody who makes a lot of presentations I try to aspire for that every single time
0: yeah yeah let's get to your career and life path starting with the very beginning with your origin story so if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how that's shaped you into the person you are today
1: sure I was born and raised in Chennai India and grew up there and lived there until I was about 12 when I came over to the United States and my family and I immigrated over here to uh, a suburb of Boston. So we lived in New England for a long time here as well. I think growing up in India shaped me in some pretty important ways. I grew up in a culture that really values education, where as a kid, you would compete in school the same way that you compete in sports in the US. and that comparative spirit, I think, definitely still carries through with me until, you know, until today. And I think my interest in learning and how much I value education and people who are, you know, it's not necessarily formal education, but just who are constantly learning and trying to push themselves to be better. That's something that's still with me today as well. And I was lucky to grow up in a family where I a lot of attention from my parents and they really helped me develop and you know and we had extended family living close to us and so there were a lot of you know early role models even in those days and that's something that i've been very lucky to have and that's something i'm trying to make sure that my kids have as well
0: so I, i know you're a boston sports fan as well that kind of developed once once you arrived
1: yeah that's right i I'm a huge Boston sports fan, which is, you know, really funny. It it was a little funny in San Francisco, but there's many Boston sports fans in San Francisco, it's even funnier in New York where, everywhere I go, people automatically have a great reason to not like me because I'm fairly (laughs) open about my fandom for Boston sports and in New York city, that's not going to endear you to too many people. I will say my first year in Boston, in the United States was the season where Pedro Martinez, uh, who was a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox and just one of the all-time greats, he had his Cy Young season. And a Cy Young award is given to the best pitcher in each of the two leagues in Major League Baseball. And he won that year. And every, every four or five days, I would get to watch him pitch. And he was this little guy. And at that time, I was a little guy. And you know, I just really saw myself in him. And he was just striking out batter after batter. And that's what got me into baseball and the Boston Red Sox. And once you get into the Boston Red Sox, the other teams, it's very easy to get into the other teams as well. And you know, it was the Red Sox, then it was the Celtics, and then the Patriots, and then the Bruins. And then it was all Boston sports. And that's, that was my journey into sports fandom, and especially Boston sports fandom.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, that makes a, a nice segue to our next topic. You stayed in the, the greater Boston area for college you attended WPI and I know you got a full scholarship there. So I'm curious, how did you apply for and get that scholarship?
1: I applied to, I think, maybe eight colleges and I was really academically focused. I had great grades and really good SAT scores. And I applied to a lot of Ivy League schools and I applied to WPI very much by accident. And it was because somebody I knew in high school who was a classmate and that I really respected had also applied to WPI. And I didn't really, I hadn't really heard of them. But thankfully they were on the common application that year. And so I just had to check a box that sends sends the app sends application to the school as well. And that's how I ended up applying to WPI. And it was the best thing that has happened to me. It was the best accident that's happened to me, we'll put it that way. And I, you know, ended up getting into a, a bunch of schools, and it came down to money because we had just been in the US for about four or five years very little in terms of savings, and so any sort of ex- expenditure for college would mean I would basically have to take on debt or make my parents pay for it, which I don't think I was very excited about at that time either. And so I was banking on a scholarship from somewhere, and so it came down to Boston University or WPI, and WPI offered me a full scholarship, and I think Boston University gave me a half scholarship. And, you know, then that was the first time I actually visited WPI. and then i really fell in love with the place it was quiet it was secluded the campus was beautiful the people were extremely friendly and i sat in on a class and really enjoyed the lecture and i decided hey i really wanted to study engineering wpi once i kind of did more and more research really was an exceptional school that was very focused on teaching instead of research and that plus the full scholarship made it kind of a no-brainer decision, and that's how I ended up going there. And in terms of how I got the scholarship, I think it was you were automatically eligible if you applied to the school and you had a certain test scores and grades and so on and so forth. And I was lucky enough to be one of the one of the chosen few that year.
0: Well, wow. yeah, yeah, makes sense. And so WPI is in Worcester, and I'd love to hear how was your time in Worcester.
1: My time in Worcester was great, and I know you have some Worcester roots as well, which is a very funny coincidence. Now that you're in Zurich and I'm in New York City, my time in Worcester was great. I have to say I can't I didn't really step out of campus too much. WPI had a lot going on within within the campus. And I was very involved in different campus activities. I was involved in student government. I was an RA, was a tutor for calculus. And so a lot of my activities kept me on campus. And I loved every part of the campus experience. The few times I'd set foot into the city would be to go out to dinner once in a while with my friends. I remember the Boynton, which is sort of the you know, the restaurant that's very close to WPI and a few other a few other college joints, but nothing crazy in terms of my experiences with the city of Worcester.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I kind of had a similar experience with a lot of time on campus. One memory for me is the frequent commuter rail journeys into Boston once I started doing internships in in like Cambridge and Boston and the the journey in every time and the walk to the train station.
1: That's right. That's right. I remember that as well.
0: Yeah. And kind of in our pre-chat, we were talking about the sole proprietor, which was, I think, actually quite close to you and their amazing lunch deals.
1: That's exactly right. At the time, I and I still don't, I didn't eat eat any fish. And so the funniest part was the sole proprietor was a nice restaurant that was near WPI. And once I was in steering government and I ended up being the president of steering government, we would go out to lunch with administrators or faculty. And we almost always go to the sole proprietor and I remember their Caesar salad really well because that's all I would get every <laughs> single time that we went there, and everybody would look at me like I was crazy. That was uh, that was my sole proprietor story, but great memories, great memories.
0: So, so you graduated from a WPI and you landed your first job at GE uh, as an aeronautical engineer. So, tell us more a bit more about that.
1: Sure, I loved planes and just tinkering with stuff, even early in early childhood. I, my, my mother always says my first choice were a screwdriver and a wrench. And I would be messing with my you know dad's bicycle and breaking things in the house. And that was my, th- those are my early days. And so I've always loved engineering and working with my hands and planes, I think became a fascination once I took my first long flight coming from India to the U S and in Frankfurt, which is our stopover, this is a funny story, in Frankfurt, there was some sort of situation and we had to walk onto the tarmac to get to our plane. And when we were on the tarmac, I saw this other plane landing from a few hundred, few thousand feet away. And that was just so exceptional and so beautiful. And you just think about how many hundreds of thousands of pounds these planes must weigh. And yet they're landing so gracefully. And there's obviously just, there's a lot of attraction toward just flight in general, because it's, it really, looks like it defies the laws of physics, but it doesn't. And I swore that if I ever got the chance that I would go into aeronautical engineering. And I was very lucky to get that chance uh, with GE Aviation, which is one of the employers that recruited at WPI. And we had a huge WPI community at GE Aviation. And the aviation business at GE effectively builds aircraft engines and different components for both military and commercial planes. And I could not think of anything cooler at that time. And so when they came onto campus, I applied for internships and I was very lucky to get placed within within that business and really had a great time there.
0: Nice. Nice. And so after that, you decided to pursue an MBA, which is a major decision. You kind of step out of your career, you go back to studying, but also gives you a a huge boost in many ways. So tell us a bit about some of the factors that went into making that decision.
1: The decision to switch from engineering to business, I think had been a few years in the making for me when I was at WPI, I lived these two sort of very two separate lives where in one life I was a lab rat and loved my classes and loved learning. And I was a double major in mechanical engineering and mathematics and loved both fields and the interplay between those two fields. And I really thought that I was going to go get a PhD in aerospace engineering. I was doing some very, you know, interesting sort of work at the time with one of our professors at WPI on the, on that front. And I really loved it. I, I, and the idea of working on a problem so deeply, I think still to me appeals appeals a fair amount. But there was also this other life that I was living where I was extremely involved in campus, was doing a lot of work with student government. I loved being an RA, a resident advisor. I loved being a tutor and teaching people and watching them go from, I don't understand this, to, oh, it's not so hard after all. And that sort of you know moment w- w- where you see that light bulb flicker on, somebody said i think is incredibly rewarding and i went to ge because i really thought i was going to go find a problem that was interesting that had some real world impact at ge because they were at the cutting edge of aerospace engineering at the time and they still are and go back to go get my phd somewhere and and you know perhaps teach and do research and, and all those things and i think what struck me within within the first few months of being a ge was that I didn't like being by myself for long periods of time. And the job is fairly solitary. You're in front of a computer for most of the day, and it takes a long time to develop expertise, as it should, because that's a very important field in terms of safety. And there's you know, so many requirements that go into being a good aerospace engineer and a good aeronautical engineer. And a lot of that path was very solitary. And certainly you had mentors, and I was lucky to have several of those at GE, but a lot of the work is by yourself. And I missed the interaction with other people very much. And I also missed working on less structured problems and engineering in general is just very structured. And as a young engineer, the problems you're given are extremely structured. And yes, there's some creativity in solving those problems, but I missed broader problems that affected other parts uh, of society that, you know, would bring together cross-functional and interdisciplinary thinking, not just engineers, perhaps artists or you know, writers or politicians or, you know, or business people. And I missed the interdisciplinary interaction that you really get in business. And I had a you know, few trustees of the university at the WPI who I'd interacted with when I was in student government. I reached out to them and I think without fail they advised me to really consider an MBA. And I think that was really the first time I thought about an MBA. And again, I, you know, took took the GMAT dutifully and was lucky to do well. And I said, why don't I give this a shot? And that's how I ended up applying to uh, a few schools. This time I didn't apply to eight schools, so I only applied to uh, four schools and I applied to all the top programs in the country and was lucky to get into get into them and ended up choosing Harvard because p- partly because it was, and I think to this day, it remains just the global leader in business education. And also partly because it was in my backyard and I would have to move too far and I could yeah. still, you know, sit with my parents my brother and get a world-class education along the way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You didn't just go to any school, you went to Harvard and I assume you had your pick of school, but you mentioned the, the real differentiator there. But maybe just a little bit about your experience, what was maybe the most remarkable part of your time at Harvard?
1: Yeah, I really, you know, they they market it as an experience that will transform you and it seems very lofty and frankly, unattainable, but I will say it did transform me and changed my perspective on a whole bunch of different things. And I think changed what I wanted for my life and changed what I believed I could do uh, with my life and with my career. And I think it gave me a real shot of confidence and being around all these other students who are my you know, peers and classmates who had come from all these incredible backgrounds, I, I think really makes you a lot more humble about what are the different paths that you can take to succeed. And you realize how lucky you were uh, to have all the opportunities that you did. And you also realize, I think, and this is important, is you realize that people who come from extremely wealthy backgrounds and from very privileged backgrounds, don't necessarily have it that much better than you sometimes. And I think you gain some empathy for people of all backgrounds and you realize that everybody's on their journey. And I think there's certainly the stereotype of sort of a spoiled child of wealthy parents who did it all by themselves. And now you get to enjoy all this without having to work for it. And what I found at, at you know, Harvard Business School was the opposite. I think people were just trying to make it and trying to make a difference in the world. And whether they came from great backgrounds with a lot of privilege or not great backgrounds where they had to fight a lot of challenges, I sensed a great energy and enthusiasm of my classmates. And 10 years down the line, we're all doing different, interesting things. And I think we're all trying to do things the right way. And that's been interesting. And I think being around all those people for two years and having all these debates about what we wanted and what we aspired to and what scared us, I think that was pretty transformational.
0: Yeah, what you're saying really resonates with me. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast because it's so interesting, all the different factors that come together to take people to where they are at a specific point in time. We, we have these kind of quick initial impressions, but then when you really dig into each person's story, there's so many layers to it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: And so, so that was transformational, right? So post MBA you're out of engineering and you go to McKinsey and and you were there for a couple of years and then you co-founded Zen Purchase, which is first of all, congratulations on creating a company that is really something very difficult to do and takes a lot of courage. We're going to talk about the successful exit, but before that I would love to hear because you know, it's not just highlights, it's the full journey. So maybe what were some of the really challenging moments as the founder, as the CEO, were there times where you thought it just wasn't going to happen?
1: Yeah. Being a founder was very challenging in every way possible because your job becomes your life. And when you start a company, there's nothing else backing it other than your reputation, your enthusiasm and your belief and conviction. And so every day you find all those things challenged because the world effectively tells you, we're not sure we really need this. And why are you different? Why are you better? And you really have to have a lot of conviction in what you're doing and the fact that you're not crazy. And certainly you're watching people in more traditional career paths advancing along their careers. And here you are just waiting in the parking lot of a prospective customer and somebody's blown you off for a meeting and they told you they were gonna meet at ten AM, but they effectively just, you know, said, Hey, I can't meet until two PM today and you pretty much just have to wait and you pull up your laptop and you tether it to your phone <laughs> and you try to get some work done in the meantime. And those and those moments happened over and over again. People say no to you all the time. And I think I really learned a lot about myself. And, you know, what my capabilities were. And I think I think that was another transformation experience in terms of having to go out and get these things that nobody's gonna give you. Nobody really cares that you went to this school or that you worked at this company or that company. When you're talking to a prospective customer, it's about what can you how can you help me do my job better? And we had we had some enterprises who were very early adopters of ours, which were I'll forever be grateful to that. But I remember I remember pitching a slide deck and I'd made this mock-up in Balsamic, which any designers listening to this podcast, I apologize in advance. It's <laughs> by far the, lo- the lowest Fidelity mock-up tool that you can possibly get, but it's also the only mock-up tool that somebody with my limited skill set can go use. But I remember making mock-ups of here's what these screens are gonna look like and here's what we're gonna help you do. And Zen effectively was a collaborative sourcing platform to help procurement departments and sourcing departments select vendors, do RFPs, RFQs and the like. And, we were replacing email and Excel and all these different texts and chats and consolidating it all into one place. And our vision was that not only could you do that process, but once you selected a supplier, we would help you maintain a, a record of that supplier and that supplier's performance within your company. So end to end from initial supplier selection, all the way uh, through to supplier performance and renewal and so on and so forth. And you know, it's just, it, it's very interesting. People will buy again, people will buy into vision, people will you know, trust you if you are solving a real problem for them. And the bar I think is the bar is high in terms of ability, but at some point, I think everybody says this problem is huge. And here's this guy who this is all he thinks about. And he's telling me that he's going to solve this problem. And am I going to throw a few thousand dollars his way to help, help him get a deal with us and help him solve this problem for us. And especially in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, I think a lot of companies, even enterprises are willing to do that. And this was 2013 and 2014 and now fast forward seven, eight years. And I think every company around the world is willing to do that today. Software has come a long way over the past decade and every company realizes that they need software in order to succeed. And they're willing to invest in entrepreneurs. They're willing to invest in people who have a clear understanding of their problem and are proposing solutions that make some sense. And they're willing to take that chance because if that chance pays off, that could transform their business. And that's happening at every function across every single enterprise of, or company of any size. And I think that's, what's, that's, what's really fun about being an enterprise software today. And I see this trend continuing for the next, hopefully as long as I live and beyond that, but I really see this trend continuing for a very long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Enterprises are much more willing right now to take that chance to take that bet than they were even just five, 10 years ago.
1: That's exactly right. And until I became a founder and had to go pound the pavement to go get these deals and to go recruit engineers and to go recruit investors, you don't, every day is hard. It's not, it's definitely not way easier than you imagine it. If you're willing to persist and if you're willing to just keep waking up every day and you're willing to keep going for it, then the world does bend in your direction eventually. And yeah. that I think was an incredible learning for me. And I think when I apply that mentality to the later stage startups that I've been a part of since then, that has yielded some exceptional results because I think most Mm -hmm. people who have never done that before have don't believe that certain things are possible. When I know for a fact that they are possible, you just have to go do these things over and over again, or do things a certain way. And the world will bend eventually. And that, I think that learning has helped me be a more effective individual performer, has helped me be a more effective manager. And part of my mission I see is helping other people realize what's possible and helping them see the light and helping them be more effective. And that's been really rewarding as well.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating to hear you talk about like all the different things you had to do. I mean, we think of a CEO founders having to, of course, go out and sell their offering, but you also have to be an expert recruiter. It sounds like you have to also do some design work. There's all these things that perhaps you wouldn't do it at a, at a much larger company. You really, it, that comes down to you.
1: Yeah. You do. Yeah. You effectively do whatever it takes.
0: Uh,
1: I never you know, thought about titles. I never thought about anything other than what do I need to do today? And do I have the energy and the willingness to go make it happen? And you know, that includes, you've talked about recruiting. I, I feel like every function of that job in the early days is recruiting. You're recruiting people to join your team. You're, you're recruiting your customers. You're recruiting investors. Mm-hmm. You're recruiting you know, people in media and analysts to your cause, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of selling. It's a lot of recruiting. I have a lot of empathy for people in companies who are in prospecting roles, like account development representatives or sales development representatives or business development representatives or wh- you know, whatever they're called at different companies. That job is really hard. I remember I dedicated a we- day a week to that, and it was the hardest day of the week every single week. And you just gain, you gain a lot of empathy and you just, you try to do whatever it takes
0: yeah. And so you, you had a successful exit with the acquisition by Coupa. And I'd love to hear you as the founder, as the CEO, what were the emotions you felt when all of that went through?
1: We were a very small company at the time, and we had a handful of early customers. And when I had the chance to meet Rob Bernstein, who's the CEO of Coupa, and the whole management team, almost all of whom are still there at Coupa. Uh, I really felt like these were incredibly committed, incredibly intelligent, and just dedicated people. And you just get a feeling when you meet people sometimes that, yeah, these are my kind of people. And the vision that they had, even at that time when they were about, I think, 400 employees, and were still a private company, even the vision that, that Rob had at that time of what the future of what they now call business spend management could be. I really felt that that was a winning approach and the team was exceptional. And I felt I was in my twenties at the time and I, you know, had just stumbled on enterprise software sort of a couple of years back. And I really thought that I could learn a lot from helping Coupa grow. And I felt that I had opportunities to go work in different parts of the business and that, you know, effectively is what materialized and, I, and that's what convinced, I think, me and my co-founder to say yes and agree to join Coupa. It was also bittersweet. My co-founder and I had been through a lot together and those are bonds you build for life and we we certainly got together after the acquisition every single week for probably months and our feelings would alternate between we did the right thing versus man, I wish we'd kept going. And I think that's every, I think every founder at every scale of exit has that feeling, whether you sell your company for $10 billion or whether you sell your company for whatever, some very small number, I think you go through that feeling because it's hard to give up something that has come to almost define you as a person for so long. And that's really what Mm -hmm. these startups are. They, and, and that's the relationship between a startup and the founder of that startup. And my co-founder and I certainly felt that. Over over time, it became very obvious that we had made the right call. As Coupa continued to grow and our careers grew, grew after that, the the memories from building that company together are, you know, memories I'll keep with me forever and and someday I'll do it again.
0: So you were you were Coupa for several years. It was also transformational in your career, and that's when you formally took on marketing roles. You had of course been doing marketing, even in some of your previous roles, but you took on marketing and specifically product marketing and you continue to work in marketing. So I'm curious what keeps you in marketing?
1: I backed into product marketing and backed into marketing for lack of a better explanation. I had a bunch of different roles at Coupa, which were general management-esque roles. I you know, had the responsibility of working with our mid-market team to help grow that business. And this was at a time when Coupa had gotten pulled up into the enterprise so quickly and they really needed some dedicated effort in their mid-market business to make sure that it got its time in the sun and it got its fair share of retention. And that was my job. So I was really dedicated with helping the sales team win. And that meant everything from recruiting salespeople because we were growing very fast in the mid-market at that time. Every part of Coupa was growing fast at that time and continues to do, but we were recruiting some great sales executives and sales reps. We I had to change the messaging for the mid-market because the market was very different in the mid-market than it was in the enterprise. The competitive set was very different. Our pricing and packaging needed to be different. And as I'm talking through this, you're probably realizing that this is what product marketing does, but I didn't really know that at the time. I just was solving business problems and it was a lot of fun working with the sales team. I really, again, I think my calculus tutor background and interest came back here is I would work with sales reps and watch them go from, I didn't really understand what we were trying to say here to now I get it. And they're transferring that knowledge to every prospective customer that they have. So it's a high leverage activity to really train every single salesperson and to work with every single salesperson. And that's how I got to really enjoy sales enablement. And I got to enjoy messaging and positioning our solution in the market. And future roles at the company had me doing more around things like international expansion, pricing strategy and working across functions to help the company grow. And, and then I was the general manager of our expense management business unit, which again, just like we had done for mid-market expense management needed its own identity within the company at the time. And it needed, it needed its own sales collateral, needed its own customer success stories, and it was a fast growing product. And we did a lot of work on the product at that time. And that was a really fun cross-functional team. And it was what I had envisioned when I first went in to get an MBA was working with teams of different, with people from different backgrounds and different, you know, skill sets. And that was a really fun job. We, you know, massively grew that business that year. And I'll remember a lot of those wins very dearly. And then I got to be the VP of product marketing when we hired a new CMO. And turns out product marketing is just all those things that I just talked to you about. Except there's a function for it and it's called product marketing. And I was really happy to be able to do that for the whole company and get to know every part of the business. And by this time, Coupa was a public company. We'd gone through an IPO about a year back and it was a really, it was a really fun time to be there. And it was really, it was a great company, so many amazing learning experiences. And to this day, I talk to people from Coupa every single week, whether it's just conversational or we're talking shop or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah and, and since we're on the topic I'd love to pick your brain a bit more on on product marketing. It's one of these functions where it's I think it's matured a lot in the past years but still can mean something different in in every tech company. What do you think is really core to the role? How, how would you explain product marketing?
1: Yeah, I would explain product marketing in terms I've I've had a lot of time to think about this. I don't think I've got I don't think I've got the right answer yet, but here's what I'm going with as of today. I think about the purpose of product marketing first. And I think about what is the purpose of this function? You know what the purpose of product management is. You know what the pr- purpose of a sales function is. You know what the purpose of a finance function is. Product marketing is a, it's a mishmash of a whole bunch of different things. And so you have to create your own purpose. And what I arrived at is I defined the purpose of product marketing as having to deliver three different types of wins to the company. And the first type of win is win more deals. I think about product marketing, increasing win rates, helping increase pipeline through effective messaging to early stage prospective customers that are at the very top of the funnel and helping your demand generation team with messaging for that. And as they come down the funnel, helping with content to help educate the prospect and position your solution in a way that resonates with each prospect. And finally, when it comes down to the sales team, helping enable a sales team with great positioning, with great messaging, with great comparative intelligence. When that's necessary, and just helping them become domain experts, and add value to you know every interaction that they have with the prospect, and that's where it helps you win more deals. And product marketing is supporting every single part of that funnel in a big way. So that's the first win is win more, and win more deals. Uh, the second thing is win bigger. And when I talk about winning bigger deals, the first thing that comes to mind is average selling price, and how do you increase increase the deal size of what your you know co- company is selling over time, and that is part innovation. We have, you can build more products and get more money for those products. And that, you know, involves influencing product management and the roadmap, which means you have to have a really good knowledge of the customer and the prospective customer so that you have some credibility with product management. It involves setting pricing and packaging appropriately so that you're capturing your fair share of value for the value that you create for your customers. And again, I think it involves a lot of sales enablement and communicating that value and helping them communicate value effectively. And that, that combination is, you know, what helps you win bigger deals and win bigger. And the last thing I think about is winning forever. and this is all about competitive advantage. You heard it described as modes or now recently flywheels. whatever analogy does you want to use, it's about long-term competitive advantage. and in software, that is a daily mission. You can never rest on your on your laurels. Every market is competitive. There are multiple great software companies in every single market that are executing really well. We're no different either in any of the companies that I've worked w- worked for and probably will work for in, in the future. And product marketing has a big role in playing has a big has a big role in ensuring that this competitive moat stays and gets reinforced over time because we're interfacing across all the different functions of the company. And so, what we're learning from the market, whether it's from our sales or customer success teams, you know, needs to go back to product management. What we are learning from product management in terms of new features that are coming out you know, needs to get communicated correctly and positioned correctly. And your offering really and what you're selling to the market changes on a, on an annual basis and your positioning changes and you know what you talk about in your sales presentation changes and making sure the product marketing is leading that effort I think is a big deal and I think about those three wins I think about winning more I think about winning bigger and I think about winning forever and product marketing I think has a big role to play
0: in in all those things that's so well articulated the way you you put it the definition is really so outcome oriented I love that that you can actually like the first two are very clear metrics you can look at it, you, you talked about, I think, what many people would talk about when defining product marketing would really connecting it to the outcome. And your product marketing leader, when you hire product marketing managers, what are the kind of skills that you look for?
1: I'm glad you talked about being outcomes oriented because I think that is, if I look at the state of product marketing today, I think that really is the difference between great product marketing teams and product marketing teams that are, you know, not getting their time of day from the executive teams and from the people that they support. I think when you can clearly point the outcomes that you're trying to influence and how you're going to help those other teams get there, that leads to a way better partnership across the company. And that's what I've strived for. And when it comes to hiring folks, I look for people who are intellectually curious. I look for people who want to go get things done and who are comfortable with ambiguity. And that's really it. I can't say I prefer a specific type of person or a specific background. We've hired people who have MBAs. We've hired people who don't have MBAs. We've hired people who have domain expertise and who don't. We've hired people who are you know, great at spreadsheets and we've hired people who are just completely scared of spreadsheets. And I try to build a team that has, as a team, a complete set of skills. But on an individual basis, I'm totally, Willing and eager to take a shot on people who have uh, the qualities that I mentioned, and I'm absolutely willing to accept a few areas of development and a few areas of of just inexperience, with the hope that if people are willing to learn, they show up every day, wanting to get better, that they'll fill those gaps over time, and they'll reinforce their strengths as well. And I think that's been my hiring philosophy. And again, it's hard to put into words, but you recognize. I think once you've been in this industry for a little bit and you've been at different companies that have been successful, you understand what are common traits of different cultures. And I just try to hire for those. And it's those things that I talked to you about, intellectual curiosity, a willingness to just be outcomes oriented and just go get things done. And a willingness mm-hmm. to collaborate effectively with different people at all levels of the organization. Those are the things that I look for.
0: Yeah, yeah I absolutely agree. I think that's very much true in product marketing. And I would say even just more generally, with the pace of change, it's really all about people who are intellectually curious, who are willing to adapt because you you really can't use the playbook even from a couple of years back.
1: Absolutely, that's absolutely true. I think there is no, I, I try very hard not to hire playbooks and I try very hard to hire problem solvers because playbooks I think are, they certainly have their place. And I want people who have at least developed one playbook somewhere on something because they know what that looks like. And that's how you really scale companies. But when you're you know, building perhaps the first product marketing team, or you're building from close to scratch a product marketing team, and you're helping a company really do that for the first time, you want people who are general problem solvers. And you want people who know how to build playbooks and want to do that. And there's a time in a company's life cycle where the playbooks already exist to a large degree. And you want people who can, optimize and make those better, but not necessarily create new playbooks. But that's, that happens at a later scale, generally.
0: Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your role at, at Braze. You were recently promoted to VP and GM global SMB. How did this come about and and what are you excited about in this new role?
1: I am very excited about leading the growth of our SMB business. You know, you probably heard me talk about the mid-market business at Coupa. And one of my former colleagues was jokingly telling me that I just love mid-market and small businesses. And perhaps that's true. I think I identify still with the little guy who's taking on the big guns. And I think that's part of why I work in startups and why I love startups in general. And then you look at most of startups, mid-market or small and medium business customers tend to be disruptors who are taking on the status quo and trying to improve the world in some small way. And I really, you know, empathize with that. And I really, I think it's very central to my identity. And so I'm always drawn to that opportunity. I also think that many successful uh, software companies end up getting pulled up to the enterprise. And that was certainly the case of Coupa. And that's certainly the case of Braze, where enterprises are, you know, so desiring of working with best-in-class solutions, and they're willing to take a chance now more than they were 10 years ago. And I think a lot of best-in-class software companies are getting pulled up much quicker than they were before. And what that leaves sometimes is a massive market of companies that are striving to do better and they are smaller companies. And what's interesting is a solution like Braze works exceptionally well for SMBs. And we are, every time I talk to our SMB customers, I... I'm just energized by that conversation, both by what they're doing as companies and as entrepreneurs, and also by what they're doing with Brace. And we saw an opportunity to lead across every segment of our market. And we are certainly invested in the long-term success of all of our customers. And I think that's really what this new role is about, is creating a team dedicated to SMB, to our SMB customers around the globe and serving them you know, even better And ensuring that again, it's all the things that you would consider product marketing, better positioning, better messaging, better solutions uh, for customers. And it's a whole host of business challenges that we're going to go scale. And those are the common challenges that, that you see at scale as you try to scale a business and we're going to go solve them with a dedicated group of people and with the support of the company at large. And it's a special kind of culture that can accommodate the sort of tiger team that's cross-functional. And I certainly believe that Brace has that culture and my Short time in this role so far, I, I think I've really been privileged to see all the different parts of race and all the different you know, ways that we work together. And there's a sort of common language that we all speak now because we've been at the company and that's really, that's fun, right? That's what people talk about when they talk about culture. It's how you get things done. And it's what do you say when you want to get things done with others? Uh, and that's been really fun to go do that across the company and to go build up a great, a great SMB business on top of our uh, successful customers.
0: Nice. Sounds very, very exciting and congratulations on this new role. Thank you. At at this point, I'd love to discuss your path to date. Now from where you stand now, looking back, reflect a bit on uh, on several things. So first, maybe who did you look up to when you were growing up? And also, I'm curious, has that changed over time? You mentioned Pedro Martinez, for example.
1: Pedro Martinez certainly was and is on the list. I'll say my idols, I think to this day, are people who are much closer to me. They're not celebrities. They're not generally not movie stars or politicians or CEOs that I've never even worked with. I think I've been lucky to just have good people near me. I think it started with my parents, who were the first people I think I looked up to. My, my you know, grandparents, I was close with all of them. And I think as you grow up, many of the teachers that I've had, some incredible teachers across every single year of school, across both India and the United States. You look at college professors, you look at administrators that are working hard and trying to take good care of you and trying to teach you and make you a better person. I've had a lot of good managers that started at GE and has kept going to this date. I've had, you know, I think my ratio of great managers to not great managers is like 10 to one. So it's, you know, I haven't, I haven't had that many managers, so I've been blessed on that front. I think when you work closely with somebody and you get to interact with people every day, that is a different kind of looking up to somebody because then you understand them a lot closer than just the sort of very far version of somebody that you maybe only see in television interviews or on podcasts or blogs. And not, I'm not saying there's no value in that. There's certainly inspiration that I can get from people that I've never worked with or interacted with. And I certainly do. But I think I've just been privileged to work with a lot of really high quality people. And when you can get that kind of access to incredible people, that's, those are people that are much easier to look up to. And I think that's the people I spend the time most time with. I think I'm also you know, privileged to look up to those people. And now I've got two kids and there, there are things that they do that are inspiring. There are things that my wife does that are inspiring. And I think there's a lot of joy in, in looking up there, too.
0: Tell us a bit about becoming a father. How has that changed you?
1: Being a, becoming a father has changed me very tremendously. I think you understand, finally, that how short life really is and the value of time. You, I, The hardest part of being a father, which is also the most fun part in, in some ways, is every time you have a great moment with one of your kids, and our kids are very young, two and a half, and, and they're 10 months old you realize that every time you are playing with one of your kids in a certain way, that could be the last time that happens because they grow out of habits so quickly and a bedtime routine that lasted for three months could one day just disappear and you'll never get that again. And I think you know that reality struck me pretty quickly with our first son. And that I think changes your perspective on time, changes your perspective on life. You realize that we had to give away some baby clothes Recently, and my wife and I are just crying in our bedroom, and you know <laughs> these things that you just don't see coming. Right before you have kids, these sort of mundane moments that become very emotionally charged very quickly. And kids definitely do that to you. So I think that's that definitely changes you as a person. I think it makes you. It certainly made me. I, I believe a better manager. It's made me a better colleague. I think it's hopefully making me a better person. And you want to do things right because now that there's two people. In my case, two two children watching your every move, and they start to pick up your words too. So I've had to cut down on my swearing a lot, for example. <laughs> and it's just it's a different phase of your life, and I think it, it really changes you. It's definitely changed me, changed me a lot in a, in, a, in a bunch of different ways.
0: Do you find you've been able to better empathize with your parents?
1: Yes, hundred percent. I think you you realize that it's challenging for everybody, no matter where you are and what resources you have. And (laughs) you realize that when your mother says that you were a picky eater, what that means now (laughs) (laughs) and why it's so hard. And you certainly have a new appreciation for what they did and the amount of time they spent with you, which I was very lucky to have. And my wife and I both try to make sure that our kids have that too.
0: Yeah. So just as we wrap up, I would love to look back and you've taken some pretty big bets in your career. You've moved across the country a couple of times. If you look back at all of this, what would you say are some of the the most pivotal moments or the best decisions that you made maybe that you weren't so sure of at the time, but now looking back with, with the view that you have now?
1: Yeah, I think some great decisions were going to get my MBA was a good decision. I don't regret that. I had some trepidation at the time because I felt that I was shutting off the technical path completely. But now that I'm in software, I get to work with engineers and I get to work with product managers and do some interesting things there. And I don't regret that decision at all. I don't regret um, leaving what at that time was a very interesting and and fun role where I was learning a lot in McKinsey. I don't regret leaving there, even though at that time, leaving a very safe, very desired path for a lot of people was difficult, um, especially given that I had no other business experience other than my time in McKinsey at the time, Uh, to go start a company was, I think. At the time, was a foolhardy decision, but knowing what I know, know now and knowing the challenges that I went through in those two years at Zen Purchase, I don't regret that one bit because it's made me the person that I am today, and I'm very grateful for that. Other good decisions, I think joining Koopa was a great decision. Great people there. Learned a lot. Forever thankful to that team and to Rob and everybody there. Funny enough, joining Brace, I think, was a good decision because when we were decide- we decided to move to New York from San Francisco. New York isn't exactly the same sort of hotbed for enterprise software that San Francisco is. And there were not that many companies that I felt had what it took to go to go all the way and to go drive toward great outcomes. And Braze was one of the very few. And I, I spoke with probably all the companies that I felt were on a great trajectory and would value my experience. And again, it came down to the people at Braze. I really enjoyed every single conversation I had. I came away inspired and energized and I think that, that ended up being a great decision as well. I think if I reflect on good decisions, it was I think driven mainly by people and taking bets on people. And I think that that's a good, that's a good way. At least it's been a good way for me to make career decisions so far is betting on people that I, that I believe in and that I trust. And I think that has always worked out in the long term, even though, there's always challenges in the short term with any decision, but I think the long-term, I think betting on, betting on good people and, and trying to build long-term relationships is just a winning strategy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. With the right people, you can figure things out. That's right. That's right. So I'd, I'd like to end with something new actually for season two, which is just rapid fire questions. So I have five of them. Favorite beverage during working hours?
1: Oof. Favorite beverage would probably be a regular Coke but I can't drink too many of those. And so my most common beverage is water.
0: Yep. That's always a good one. Favorite piece of software at work.
1: I can give you a lot of answers for least favorite piece of software at work. My favorite (laughs) piece of software at work is probably the Google suite. Does that count as one piece of software? If it's not the Google suite, I'd probably pick Slack. I, I love working in Slack. I think it's a great, I think it's incredible software. I think the potential user experience, is phenomenal. And I am very hopeful that they will keep building building into it. I know they got acquired by Salesforce recently, but I'm hopeful that they'll you know, keep this going and making it better.
0: That works. And favorite app or software in your personal life?
1: I'm looking at my phone to see what I use most commonly. It's really changed over the years. I think right now it's some combination of Spotify and the Photos app because we spend an embarrassing amount of time each day, looking at photos of our kids. And so I'm, <laughs> in, the photos, I'm in the photos app way too much, which is why I think it's probably the my, most popular app, uh, on my phone right now. Uh, so it's between that and Spotify, because I'm a big music while working person for deep yeah. work at least.
0: Yeah. Okay. Second to last one, something new you've learned recently or something you're looking forward to learning.
1: I try to pick a hobby each year where I can be a rank beginner. And I try to get to some level of competence in that field. This year's hobby is baking. And so that is my something new that I'm learning. I have made some (laughs) slightly undercooked cookies. I have made very delicious cakes. No, nothing fancy. New York Times recipes and other stuff that I find on the internet. Baking really appeals to my need for exactness and also appeals to the quantitative side of me. Because everything has to be so precise and you know, in order for the in order for the results to be good. And it's good. It's fun for the kids. Our my older son will, will help me once in a while in the kitchen and it's fun to get him involved. And uh, yeah, that's my new hobby. That's my new thing that I'm learning. Great Very for the winter days. as well. Exactly. Great, great for the winter. Not so great for for controlling your sugar, but that's okay. We'll <laughs> solve that problem. We'll solve that problem when it when it comes.
0: Final one, favorite podcast.
1: I think my favorite podcasts are, if I look by, so there's some interesting podcasts. So it's an an eclectic collection, but the Bill Simmons podcast for sports news. So he's a sportscaster in very popular in the United States. And I listen to that once in a while and I'm getting ready in the morning. Uh, The knowledge podcast with Shane Parrish, love that podcast. I, I think the types of people that come on to that podcast and the conversations that happen are just exceptional And the other sort of podcast path is I try to, if I want to, if I read an interview from a certain person and I really like the interview and I want to learn more about how they think about the world, I'll search their name for for podcasts. And often they've done a few podcasts here or there and you get to understand them better and you get to understand their thinking better. So it's just a more colorful, it, it adds more color to their thinking. And so I've done that a few times. And so it's not one particular podcast, but that is one of my, one of my habits.
0: Very nice. Sunny, thank you so much for joining. You have an incredible story and thank you for taking the time to share with all of us today.
1: Thanks for having me Vijay, it was a pleasure.
0: Wow, what a great set of stories. I really enjoyed hearing Sunny take us through the ups and downs. From standing at an airport, watching planes cruise by, to becoming an aeronautical engineer, from having to wait in the parking lot for hours to secure a meeting for his startup to his company getting acquired. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening and see you next time.